You're listening to Living Healthy Longer by the Columbine Health System Center for Healthy Aging. Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about this, and I think the story I really want to tell is about our relationship with dogs. And when I mean our relationship, I mean humans' relationship with dogs. Um, We've known for a long time that dogs were the very first domesticated species, and some recent analyses have shown, um, looking at genetics of ancient dogs' remains that were found in close geographic and spatial relationship to ancient human remains, that dogs have really been with us for about 15,000 years, at least. Um, So it's not just that they were the first domesticated animal, but it's that we've been cohabitating with dogs for literally thousands of years. And through that process of cohabitation, we've also experienced really similar environmental pressures. We literally have populated the world together. At the end of the Pleistocene era, um, as humans started to, to move from Siberia into other areas of the world, like down into the Americas, we actually brought our dogs with us. So really, our populations of dogs have been with us for a long time, and we've experienced the same environmental pressures, something called convergent evolution. And so our genetic structure is actually really similar to dogs, in fact, more similar to dogs than any other domesticated species. So I think that the thing that's amazing to me is that I think about the work that I do, which involves companion dogs, so dogs that are still living with humans, but in the modern era, obviously, and how much that has been influenced by this really long history that we have with having dogs as our best friends. That is Dr. Audrey Rupel, an associate professor of quantitative epidemiology at the Virginia Maryland College of Veterinary Medicine at Virginia Tech. She earned her bachelor's degree in microbiology, master's degree in epidemiology, and Doctor of Veterinary Medicine from Colorado State University, where she also earned a PhD in cell and molecular biology with a specialization in cancer biology. A researcher with many hats, Dr. Rupel now uses One Health Concepts to study comparative biomedical aspects of cancer and aging. She is also the veterinary epidemiologist on the Dog Aging Project, an open access data science study to understand how genes, lifestyle, and environment influence aging. In this episode, we discuss genetic similarities between dogs and humans, the underrepresentation of diverse groups in human and dog studies, and how big data is revolutionizing diagnoses in translational medicine. I hope you enjoy. I'm your host, Hannah Hallisker, and this is Living Healthy Longer, a podcast from the Columbine Health System Center for Healthy Aging at Colorado State University. Okay, Audrey, thank you so much for coming on our show and talking to us. I'm really excited to get to talk to you. Thanks. I'm really excited to be here. Okay. So I think, you know, talking about big data and health equity and canine studies, I'm curious to know a little bit more about you and about your background and how it kind of led you to being involved with that topic. So what does an associate professor of quantitative epidemiology do? Well, I think to really answer that question, I have to first start with kind of where where I come from, because 
there is no one size fits all um, job in epidemiology. And I think that the world is now, I think, more aware of that than we've ever been before, because we now we're talking a lot about epidemiology in our society, um, thanks to the COVID outbreak. But my career trajectory is actually pretty non-traditional. I was a social worker and I worked primarily with HIV affected individuals. And one of the things that I seemed to encounter regularly was that many of these people would be really um, closely attached to their animals, but would often have infectious disease doctors, so their own MDs, give them advice about not having animals because of the potential for zoonoses, so zoonotic spread of disease from their animals to them because they were immunocompromised. Um, and actually, that whole idea about zoonotic disease kind of triggered a fascination for me that led to me going to veterinary school. But I went into vet school really focused on this human-animal relationship. So I think I even started vet school from just a really different um, perspective than most vet students start vet school. In my second year in vet school, I had a class in epidemiology, and it was like a ray of light came through the ceiling, and I knew exactly what I wanted to do. Like I had this direction um, for the rest of my career that I'm still actually on that same career path. Um, I, after vet school, I did a residency in infection control and biosecurity, then did a master's with that, and then did a PhD actually in cancer biology. So really looking at the epidemiology of cancer at a molecular level, um, but all of this while having this, this incredibly veterinary background, specifically veterinary background, but really interested in human health outcomes. So the work that I do now is I do studies in dogs um, that counts as translational medicine, so comparative medicine, where I will look at health and disease outcomes in dog populations and then translate that and inform human health and disease outcomes based upon that work that I do in dogs. So ultimately trying to help both species to live better, healthier lives. So how does how does that take you to the Dog Aging Project, which you are a part of? And for our listeners, we have not talked about the Dog Aging Project before, but if you work in the aging space, especially comparative aging, I'm sure you've probably heard of it. So can you tell us about the Dog Aging Project and what your role is with that project? Sure. So I'm the veterinary epidemiologist on the Dog Aging Project, and the Dog Aging Project is a project that's tracking tens of thousands of dogs over the course of their lifetime. So it's a longitudinal study. Um, as part of that, we're looking at all of the biological and environmental determinants of healthy aging in this dog population, um, with the end goal, of course, to inform both health outcomes in dogs and in humans. Um, this is something that I've been involved with um, since we wrote the grant that became that was funded. It's a U19 grant, which is through the National Institute of Aging. And um, I'm really grateful for this opportunity because it's exactly the kinds of cohort studies that we see in human populations. It's framed very similarly to what we would see with like the nurse's health study or Framingham study, um, only using dogs as the target population. So what kinds of findings have you discovered so far from the Dog Aging Project and kind of how is the study structured and, and what are some of its goals? That's a great question. So we are in year four of the project. We are still enrolling dogs. This is a, a project that has an ongoing enrollment. And what we're really finding is that there's a whole lot of really enthusiastic dog owners out there that are willing to um, contribute information about their dogs. 
Now, the very um, we've got different levels in which these animals are being sampled, and by sampled, I mean specifically, I should say, queried. Um, so we have a dog aging project pack, which is a group, which is every dog that gets enrolled into the pack is asked to complete um, survey information. And once that survey information is completed, owners are also asked to contribute their medical records if they have an electronic copy of medical records for those dogs. Um, but all of those dogs that have baseline information are considered part of the Dog Aging Project pack. Um, we then have some different um, sampling type cohorts. So we have cohorts in which we're getting genetic information. So we're doing full genomic, a genome-wide association, um, or sorry, doing genome-wide um, sampling. So we're looking at the entire genome of the dog. And then we're also getting some environmental samples. We're getting information about proteomics and multiomics, um, lots of omics stuff. And then we have um, an, a randomized control trial that is also part of this project. And so there is a small subset of these dogs that we are actually doing an interventional study looking at an mTOR inhibitor to see if we can actually impact healthy aging through use of rapamycin or rapamune. So how, how much of the dog aging project is looking for traits that dogs and humans share? And what have you found so far by looking at that? Oh, that's a great question. Well, so one of the obvious ones is the environment. Dogs truly share our environment to a greater degree than most animals do. Um, they're drinking our water. They're sleeping in our homes, often in our beds. Um, they're quite often eating our table scraps too, so they've got a pretty similar dietary structure. But they're also living in our yards, and they're experiencing our um, external environment, not just our internal home environment, in a really similar way. So that's an obvious one. But we also know um, from previous work that there's a lot of, again, this genetic similarity between dogs and humans. Um, one of the examples would be the SLC2A9 gene that is found in Dalmatians. And so this is um, an interesting thing that this one breed of dog Dalmatians have in common with humans, which is that Elantoin, which is the end product of purine catabolism, so purines are found in foods like meats, for instance, it's in every other mammal species except for great apes and humans, purines are then derived into, um, into elantoin. But in humans and in Dalmatians, that's actually derived into uric acid, which can then become something that in humans we see things like gout um, as being an end product of that type of um, catabolism. But this gene de defect that is similar in that we find in Dalmatians is actually really similar to the gene defect or the genome structure that we have in human populations. Um, so that's just an example. There's plenty of other examples. We've certainly found um, similar oncogenes, so genes that are precursors for cancer outcomes that are really similar in dogs as they are in humans. Um, and in fact, we found that those orthologs, as they're called, um, many of those orthologs in dogs are more like the human um, gene than any other species. I think that's an important point to emphasize because I know on our show in the past, we've heard a lot about how dogs and humans share the same environment. They experience some of the same diseases and conditions, but this is really at a molecular genetic level that we share this similarity with dogs. And so to put that in the research sense, it makes it a lot easier to study these genes when we know we have a dog model for it. 
It really does. And I think that this is why I picked the story that I did to start this conversation, because I really believe that the reason that we have so much similarity down to this molecular level is because of this long shared history. It's just different than what we see in mice. And we still do a lot of research in, in the murine model, and there's a lot of good research being done in the murine model, but it's not as similar as what we can do in our dogs. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I was a student of genetics. I don't know if I told you that. That was my bachelor's degree way back when. And I am well aware of how much data you get when you're studying things at the molecular genetic level. So so data is your thing as an epidemiologist. So how does the epidemiology play into your work with the Dog Aging Project? Well, sure. There's a couple of different ways. And um, big data is just such a fascinating concept and such a cool field to be in. And it's a really exciting time, I think, for this type of research to be done. Um, so I'll first talk about the genetic piece, because that one is actually really interesting. Um, so across genome structures in dogs, even dogs of different breeds, dogs are actually pretty similar. So when we do things like genome-wide association studies in dogs, there's a lot less noise than what we would see in a human population. Um, human populations were just more heterogeneous, and so there's a lot of noise in our genome, and it makes it really difficult to find the actual modifiable or the modified piece, like what is the gene that's actually responsible for disease outcomes. We have a much easier time figuring that out in dog populations just because of how homogenous their genetic structure is. On the other side, we have these massive databases of things like um, environmental in, um, outputs in dogs. And environment is actually something that's really fascinating to study in dogs because their lifespans are so much shorter. So it's not that we're looking at environmental impacts over the course of an entire lifetime. Like when we think about things like exposomes and like entire chemical um, world exposure for global exposure for an entire lifetime in humans, we're talking about over decades. With dogs, you're, we're talking really about a decade. Um, many breeds of dogs only live to be like seven to 12 years old. And so we can really get like full lifetime exposure information um, from that environmental perspective and have outcome data that we can then go back and do association studies and look at what are those environmental pieces um, that we might be able to modify and then improve health for dogs and humans both. So something that I'm interested to talk to you about, what kind of you know spurred us having this conversation today is that I know you recently got to meet with our director, Nicole Earhart, at, uh, was it Cancer and Aging? Is that what it was? Or was it Comparative Aging, a workshop that happened in D.C.? Yeah, it was a workshop about comparative um, aging, so looking at dogs as a, as a model of aging in human populations at the National Academies of Medicine. Yes, that one. <laughs> and I know that you and Nicole apparently got in this conversation about how um, you know, health inequities that we see in human clinical research are often replicated in canine studies. And when Nicole was telling me about this, I was just kind of like, wow, I've never thought about that before. <laughs> so, yeah. and, and that's all the context I have. I don't know what you guys talked about. I don't know what the details were, but that's what I heard. So, so let's have that conversation. Yeah. So, so we should, we should, we should, let's we do it. <laughs> So, so tell me what the basis of that is. Yeah, so economics are a factor in medical in medical decisions that are made for dogs. Period. Um, 
the penetration rate of, of dog insurance in the United States is really low. It's something around like 3% of dog owners actually have health insurance for their dogs. That is not the way that it is in other parts of the world. Like for instance, in the UK, it's more like 25 to 35% of dogs have some sort of an insurance policy. Um, there are some Scandinavian countries where it is required that you have an insurance policy if you own a dog, but that is not the case here in the US. And so really economics become a factor in how much healthcare can be provided to dogs. And the way we typically enroll dogs in research programs is through veterinary clinics. We're actually trying, to, we are selecting for these dogs that are being seen by vets, which are quite often, then we're talking about higher socioeconomic status individuals that are owners of these dogs. Um, this is especially the case when we start looking at you know, particularly pricey outcomes, like for instance, cancer, which is a research interest of mine, treating cancer in dogs is expensive and it's often an out-of-pocket expense for owners. And it is something that is cost prohibitive for many owners. And so what we are seeing is a couple of things. One, the access to dogs, typically because it is typically through vet, you know, channels, veterinary channels, we are only accessing people who are already getting veterinary care. Um, but two, much of our research and the way that we're getting word out about our research is being done through media and mechanisms that are really only accessed by affluent people. Um, so one of the unintended consequences is that we end up with dogs that are owned by educated, white, wealthy individuals. This is a problem. And it's something that I really worry threatens the validity of everything that we do. Because part of the way, and as an epidemiologist, I'm thinking about this from a big picture, the way that we figure out these associations is it's all about finding variability within these data. And if all of our dogs are coming from a really homogeneous population of people, we're actually decreasing the variability of what we're finding. And so that to me feels like a data threat, like a, a, a genuine threat to the validity of our studies. But the other piece that's really concerning to me is that we know that social injustice and social inequality exist. That is also true in terms of environment. There is a true problem in terms of environmental justice. When we look at issues like the Flint water crisis, and we see these thousands of children who were exposed to this high lead level in water, those were not white kids. Those were predominantly low socioeconomic status children of color. And so when we are only studying these impacts of environment, um, in our dog populations that belong to white people, what we're really doing is increasing the health and welfare and lifespan for these white people's dogs and for these white people who live in these environments that these dogs are living in. And my real worry is that if we're not addressing this specifically, and not just in a, in a way where we come and we take and we learn information and then walk away, but if we're not really integrating and actually becoming part of the communities that we really want to impact most, who are going to benefit the most from the work that we're doing, I think that we're going to miss a real opportunity. And I worry that it's not just then a validity issue, it's truly an ethical issue. I'm just floored by that observation. And like I said, it's something I've never really thought about. But now that you explain it, I completely see how that's a worry that you have. One of the questions that comes to mind is, what do you th what do you think you might find if in results of your studies 
if your participant population was more diverse? That's a great question. Well, for one thing, I think that we're going to see that there are different environmental pieces that might be modifiable. And there's going to be things that I think we're not aware of, right? Because we haven't looked for them. I do think that there's different environmental exposures and different socioeconomic statuses. Like I, I believe that kind of across the board. And I think that's something that's been borne out in much of the research that's been done. But we don't yet know all of the things that we need to be avoiding. Just like, you know, we learned about BPA being a dangerous component of plastics. But that wasn't something that we knew until that research was was borne out. And I think that that's the hard thing with research is we don't know what we don't know. So, so I think that by having a more diverse group of dogs that we are bringing into these cohort studies and these long-term studies, especially when we're looking at things like aging and health outcomes kind of across the spectrum, I think that if we're not being more um, conscientious and more explicit about including um, a more diverse group of dog owners, my worry is that what we will see is that 20, 30, 50 years from now, what we've actually done is created an even bigger health disparity crisis than we already have. Um, I think that health disparities are something that even if people really had never thought of them before two or three years ago, I would think at this point, given the massively different impact that COVID has had kind of across the spectrum, um, not just socioeconomically, but when we're looking at um, race and ethnicity and gender, um, I know we talk a lot about the impact that COVID has had on parents versus people that don't have kids. I think that what we're really seeing are these health disparities that have just become really illuminated by this true health crisis that we've had in the country. And my worry is the work that we're doing is going to continue to help better the lives of the people that are already at that top end of that health, those, that health economy, those people that are already benefiting the most from the health system that we have. And that we're going to continue to leave behind this group of people that really, in my career, I would much rather help the group that is further behind catch up than help the group that's further ahead get forward. Yes, yes, absolutely. So do you have any ideas for how to bring in a more diverse background? Or do you have any examples of maybe some studies that are already trying to recruit in that way? You know, that's a really good question. So I definitely have a lot of ideas. But but some of the ideas that I have actually come from work that I've done with a group in South Africa. Um, I have a research partnership with University of Pretoria. And University of Pretoria has this research station in the Manisi region. So this is near Kruger National Park. And it is um, a very, um, very underdeveloped part of the country. And one of the things that they have done is they have created this community health workforce. It is a group of individuals that really become part of the community, live in the region, and actually will go door to door and do vaccines and will do surveys and help um, to increase the health of people by literally living in the area that they most want to impact. Um, that is something that I think would be a fantastic thing to bring into the types of studies that we're doing in animal populations. Um, there are some examples like um, the University of Wisconsin has a veterinary clinic that is in a very metropolitan area and it specifically caters to people who are experiencing homelessness. 
I feel like partnering with those types of organizations where we really start to collect information about these animals, but in a way that we can then give back to this same group of people that might be most in need of help. I think that that's something that we should be moving towards. I think that partnering piece is probably going to be very instrumental because when I think about, you know, we're always trying to recruit people for studies and who who we are reaching when we're reaching through social media or through email. Um, and something that comes to mind is just always the hierarchy of needs. If you've heard of this before, how yes. people who are not getting their basic needs met are never going to care about the study I'm trying to recruit them for. And so so it, I think that partnering piece, like you're saying, is probably going to be very instrumental because there's are, there are organizations that already have these relationships in the community that we can really partner with and be, they could be gatekeepers to these communities like you're talking about. I totally agree. And I think that it's really important and especially um, for researchers who are not people of color, I think that one of the things that's really important is to recognize and acknowledge the reasons why people of color might not be willing to engage in research, much less see it as something that would be of benefit to them. And I think that that acknowledgement of the righteousness of that perspective and also being able to give something back where it's not just about please give us all of this information and this data and these samples. And then maybe in 25 years, somebody else will benefit from that. But like, how can we actually help to turn around and benefit these people in a more real, more concrete, more tangible way now? Yes. It brings up issues of trust. You know, if, if there's a population that has historically not been treated well by medical professionals, people of color are one they're not going to trust when you come in and you want to, them to be a part of your research study. Absolutely. And then I also think about the compensation piece of it too, of right. they would be willingly giving their information, their, you know, their biological samples over for a study that could potentially down the road lead to a drug or something that makes a lot of money somewhere. And meanwhile, are they being compensated for that fairly? I think inequities in medical research are just they're they need to be highlighted so much more than they are. It's such a problem for for getting at what you're getting at with needing these diverse populations so that we can have valid research results. But we just can't at this moment. This is why I think that it's something we really have to explicitly address because I think if we keep doing things the way that we've always done things, we're going to just keep having the same results. And it's not that what we're doing isn't still important, it is, but it's that we're missing the mark in a way that I feel like I, I feel it very heavily on my ethical self. I feel like it is something that is equally important for me in my career to not just come up with good, solid scientific findings, but also to make sure that those findings are going to be widely applicable to everybody. Uh, absolutely. I totally agree with you. So, so getting back at this you know, how you were talking about insurance, for example, what can we learn from veterinary big data, like medical records, insurance claims, things like that? How is How are records like that useful to you in clinical studies? Sure. Well, there's a couple of things that are really fascinating to me about using veterinary big data, medical records, insurance company data sets, um, 
we don't have the HIPAA requirements in dog populations that we do in human populations, which makes these data much more accessible. There's still privacy concerns. They still need to be anonymized. Those types of things still exist. But without having some of those kind of bigger issues around um, you know, HIPAA and consent um, in terms of use for looking at big studies and big data studies, um, these pieces become really fascinating and useful. So some of the things that we can do are things like building predictive models where we can look at you know, dog breed, which is a surrogate for genetics, because again, those dog genes are pretty similar to each other, but typically there's dog breed we can use as a surrogate for genetic and we can look at environmental factors. And we could also start to look at comorbidities. For instance, if a dog has a cranial cruciate ligament injury, so a cruciate ligament similar to like an ACL tear in a human. So if they have a cruciate ligament injury, how does that then impact the trajectory of the rest of their life? Do they start to acquire more comorbidities at a more rapid rate? Um, those types of things that we can do can really impact the way that we personalize medicine on the veterinary side um, in a way that we just can't yet do on the human medical side. So I've kind of gone through my questions at this point in time, but I realize we've hopped around a lot. So is there any like any string that you can draw between dog aging project, epidemiology, these health and equity concerns that we have? What's the common thread for you? I think the common thread really comes back to this relationship we have with our dogs. And I think that what we're trying to do now by building in these cohort studies of dogs um, that really can help to attribute or to help us to understand how to age healthily. Um, our hope, the overall goal is that we, all of us, people from all walks of life and from across all um, demographic, you know, spreads across the U.S., that we can start aging more healthily, um, but also do it with our companion dogs beside us. Yes. And looping in those populations that need to be looped in. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. So the last question that I always ask when someone comes on the show, we've got a new question for this season, is what makes you most excited for the future of aging research from your perspective in this epidemiology comparative aging space? Yeah, I think that the thing I'm most excited about is it feels like we're really at a place where we're making differences, where it's not just about increasing lifespan, so helping us all to live longer lives, but really to help us live healthier lives. I think we're here. I think we're at a place where we're starting to really get into the nitty gritty, where it's not just about how do we keep our bodies functioning and breathing and hearts beating, but also how are we, how's our quality of life going to be well? Like how do we keep ourselves well for as long as we're alive? Um, I really feel like we're here. I feel like we've arrived and I feel like this era of big data, this is, this is going to be a very informative one. So I'm really looking forward to the next couple of decades and seeing what we can do. What do you think big data will do for the aging space? I think we're going to learn a lot, not just about um, the modifiable risk factors, but also about some of the genetic impacts. Um, I think that there's stuff that there's so much that we just don't know yet. And I think that we might, um, because of these large population studies and because of the fact that we have populations that are living so much longer, I think that we're going to start seeing lots and lots more outcome data, which is what we're really missing in some of these larger cohort studies that have been going on for a long time, but we don't yet have all this outcome data. 
I think that we're going to, we're going to learn a lot about aging, the aging process, and also perhaps how we can slow it down on a cellular level, which is also really exciting. Yeah, it's totally exciting. And I like just from your perspective, hearing it from the canine space, because I think when people hear big data, I feel like that's an elusive term we use and we don't really define what that means. But here we are talking to you and big data can be things like medical records. It can be Mm -hmm. veterinary records, insurance claims, those research databases that I'm sure you're assembling, especially through like the dog aging project, for example. That's what we mean when we talk about big data. And that is such a resource that can be mined (laughs) for connections, for relationships between humans and our dogs, between dogs and their other breeds and things like that. Yes. And I think it's also important to note that the Dog Aging Project is an open data science project. Um, That's something that was very important for the National Institutes of Aging. And it's something that we also um, feel that is an important part of what we're doing. And so we've got a data release that's actually soon to come out um, that will be available for researchers. And we are always looking for collaborators. Absolutely. Okay, Audrey, well, that's everything I have for you. Thank you so much for coming on our show and talking to us about these things. I think this was really fascinating. And honestly, I feel like I only scratched the surface with you and I feel like we need to have another episode or something. Well, you just tell me when to come back. Thank you so much for having me, Hannah. It was great talking with you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Living Healthy Longer, a podcast from the Center for Healthy Aging at CSU. Remember to follow us on social media at CSU Healthy Aging and visit our website at healthyaging.colostate.edu. We will see you next time.